Welcome to Beyond the Text, the podcast dedicated to exploring intellectual history with depth and context. In a world filled with quick takes, we're here to dive deeper. I'm your host, Samuel Woodall, and in each episode, we'll uncover overlooked aspects of historical and intellectual narratives. Join us as we voyage into the evolution of ideas, tracing the influences that shaped them and uncovering their profound impact on the world. So let's embark on this journey together, transcending the confines of words and delving into the essence of thought. Join me as we venture beyond the text to discover the hidden stories that shape our understanding. Welcome back to Beyond the Text, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the annals of intellectual history. I'm your host, Samuel Woodall, and today, in our third episode, titled All the Classics, we're diving headfirst into the realm of an often highly protective discipline, classics. By week three of our intellectual exploration, we found ourselves at a fascinating crossroads in the turning points of Intellectual History Seminar. We were presented with a choice of texts to review, and I opted to delve into the wisdom of the ancients. My selections for the week included Plato's Crito and Book One of the Republic, alongside the Analects by the ancient Chinese scholar Confucius. Let's begin with Plato's Crito. I had the privilege of immersing myself in the 1969 compilation known as The Last Days of Socrates. In the section devoted to Crito, Plato introduces us to a form of proto-contract theory. He posits that there is a profound responsibility placed upon individual agents within a polity. This responsibility arises from the implicit consent given by individuals as they grow up and partake in the rights and privileges of society. Plato's words resonate powerfully when he asks, did we not give you life in the first place? This rhetorical question implies that it is only through the care and nurturing of the polity that an individual becomes a functioning, active agent. Furthermore, Plato contends that once an individual has accepted this upbringing, they have in fact undertaken to do anything we tell him. This early iteration of what John Locke would later refer to as tacit consent underscores the idea that by choosing to live within the bounds of society and accepting its blessings, individuals implicitly submit to its laws and regulations. Within Crito, we encounter a strong contractarian notion, a form of social contract theory that grounds morality in the state and the laws of a society. Think of Hobbes' belief in the supreme power of the state to save us from the bestial state of nature, or even Vico's anthropological observation that laws are the natural way of human functioning. This contrasts with what would later become a contractualist theory, which believes in a pre-existing code of ethics that the structures of the state should be built around. For example, Immanuel Kant believed in precursor ethical maxims, while Aquinas believed human law should comply with divine and eternal law. Both are examples of contractualist thinking. Plato, however, unmistakably leans towards the contractarian perspective, 
He writes, Do you imagine that a city can continue to exist if legal judgments have no force, but are nullified and destroyed by private persons? In this view, Plato emphasizes a strong sense of duty to observe the laws of the land, which he sees as fundamental to the maintenance of a moral society. Perhaps the clearest embodiment of this vision is found in Socrates' own demise. Socrates, who famously drank the hemlock given to him, had been offered a reprieve to leave the city. Yet he turned down this final offer, acknowledging that, having lived by the laws of the city, he must also die by them. His unwavering conviction and devotion make him a contractarian martyr, representing the ultimate standard to which a moral society must aspire, even in the face of death. As we immerse ourselves in the intellectual terrain outlined, it's essential to recognise that during this era, other schools of thought were operating with more contractualist notions of how to structure society. A proto-version of this can be seen in the Epicurean writings such as the Principal Doctrines, where duty in society is regarded as a code of ethics. This ethical framework is determined by reciprocal benefits and mutual dealings, a formulation that would later find resonance in Kant's categorical imperative as seen in the groundwork to the metaphysics of morals. So as we navigate the rich tapestry of intellectual history, we find ourselves at this juncture, exploring the contrasting ideals of contractarianism and contractualism. Stay tuned for section two, where we'll delve deeper into Plato's The Republic, book one, and unlock its profound insights. Welcome back to section two, where we are about to deep dive into Plato's The Republic, book one. Just as a reminder, I've been traversing this philosophical masterpiece with a 1955 edition from Penguin Classics as my guide. In our journey through Plato's exploration of the ethical life, we've encountered the battle between the rational and the irrational. For Plato, the passions represent the latter, leading individuals toward an unethical existence that estranges them from the rational, where ethical truths are illuminated. Plato beautifully articulates that the ethical person has, quote, escaped from the madness and slavery of passion. Yet, to achieve this escape to the ethical life, one's character must stand firm. Plato's concept of an ethical character is one that discerns truth amidst the lies and fallacies of the temporal realm. Only the intangible soul transcends this realm and attains truth. Plato firmly asserts that the material world cannot satisfy the soul. As he astutely observes, quote, a bad man won't be contented, even if he is rich. Now, if this mortal plane is devoid of truth, we must turn our gaze to Plato's profound musings on justice. He emphasises that this pivotal concept essential for governing society, cannot be a mere tool for arbitrary immorality in the name of moral purposes. Such an approach would be akin to a kind of stealing, though done to help a friend or harm an enemy. Plato challenges the legitimacy of defining justice as a form of penal punishment, questioning why a moral society would resort to retribution. 
thereby treating the immoral immorally, a notion later echoed by Immanuel Kant. The good agent, Plato argues, should not employ the bad actions to reform the corrupted. He provocatively asks, will good men use their goodness to make others bad? Plato then takes a somewhat cynical stance on justice, suggesting that it's merely the interest of whoever wields power. He writes, as if in disillusionment, that justice or right is what is in the interest of the stronger party. These words are conveyed through the character of Thrasymachus, who dismisses the entire conversation on the concept as esoteric and devoid of practical relevance. What Plato is proposing here is that the definition of right will always align with the interests of the stronger party, be it in a democracy or tyranny, leading to laws that reflect those interests. However, Plato contends that this cannot be the right way to govern. He argues that a true master, a leader in any art or science, will always rule in the interest of advancing the weaker party. This principle is exemplified through various examples, such as with sailors. Plato asserts that, quote, a captain will not give orders with his own interest in view, but that of the crew which he controls. Here, we see that knowledge in the master's field goes hand in hand with goodness. Therefore, Plato concludes that the just man is wise and good, and the unjust bad and ignorant. For a state to thrive, it requires justice, as it implies knowledge and informed leadership. In a just society, there's the prospect of greater success if they don't wrong each other. On the contrary, if injustice festers within a society, it sows division in the body politic and disrupts the harmony within the individual's mind, rendering them incapable of action. Moreover, as Plato suggests, the gods themselves are just, and therefore the unjust person becomes an enemy of the divine. When we peer into the workings of the human mind, we find that everything has a function, has its own particular virtue or excellence. The mind, too, has its own particular virtue. If the mind is deprived of its virtue, it cannot function effectively. Goodness, Plato argues, enables the mind to perform its functions well. Thus, as justice is the virtue of the mind, it paves the way for the good life, a life that is both prosperous and happy. In conclusion, Plato leaves us with a powerful insight, justice pays better than injustice. As we wrap up this section, let's ponder the profound implications of these ancient ideas on the modern world. Our intellectual journey doesn't end here. In our next section, we'll turn our attention to the wisdom of another great ancient thinker, Confucius, as we explore the Analects. Join us for section three of this episode, where we'll delve into the profound teachings of Confucius and how they continue to shape our understanding of ethics and society.